All things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Help us to receive it knowing that you have infinitely wonderful plans for us as we seek to do your word. You have given us your Holy Spirit and he dwells here among us and within us so that we might understand. Give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to love, and hands to do as a result of coming into contact with you through your word today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, of course, like I think we should probably every week, we need to look back quickly at where we've been to get to our passage today. If you'll remember, we are going through First and Second Peter, First Peter right now. And Peter, the same apostle who had walked with Jesus those three plus years of his ministry, Peter is writing to, he said in uh, chapter 1, those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now these uh, elect exiles who were believers and followers of Jesus had been scattered around the Roman world of that day and they were looking to the apostles for the teaching of what it meant to live this new life in Christ in a world that was not opening its arms to welcome or embrace them. And Peter um, said that he was going to share with them, he doesn't say it, we've said that consistently he has been urging them to live differently than the culture around them. And when he started the letter, he reminded them of the saving work of God in their lives and has since gone on to point out their struggles and the calling that they have to live that different life different from the culture and the people around them who are not followers of Jesus. And through it all, Peter has held up as the prime example of how to walk in faithful dependence on God's grace, Jesus. He said, look at Jesus. Jesus did this, so you should do this. You should do this because Jesus did this. So he holds up Jesus and he calls on these readers, on his recipients, to look to Christ over and over and over again. Now last week... Peter called on them to look to Christ once again and to arm themselves with his way of thinking so that they might determine to think like him, like Jesus, in their struggle to walk during their time in the flesh, not for worldly passions, but rather for the will of God. Noting that the Gentiles, the unbelievers, would malign them for not doing what they used to do when they were unbelievers. And then that brings us to today's passage. So chapter 4 verse 7 The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So here, as he starts into today, keep in mind that he's coming out of calling them to arm themselves with the same way of thinking that Jesus has. 
in the midst of being maligned by the Gentiles. Okay, So here Peter amplifies the urgency in all of his words to these scattered believers when he says, the end of all things is at hand. Now what if I stood up here one Sunday and before I said anything else, I said, listen, the end of all things is at hand. Outside of thinking I'm crazy, it just might catch your attention and go, whoa, that got heavy real quick, right? I mean, that's a pretty heavy statement. Seems pretty important, I think, and it is. Peter wants his readers to know that there is no time for delayed or partial obedience in what he's calling them to. It's all coming to a crescendo, we might say. And the word end here is not pointing to a stop point or like a dead end. It's not, it's not the end with nothing after it. Instead, this word end means, quote, the end to which all things relate, the aim or the purpose. It's not end and it's over. It's an end and it is accomplished. It is fulfilled. And a good word is consummation. The consummation of all things is at hand. Reaching a point where everything that has been planned has been completed. And for those older people who would know what this means, think the consummation of a marriage. The marriage doesn't end at the consummation. It really begins at the consummation. So that's the end that we're talking about here. And Peter says this is the end of all things. Now what's he talking about? All of history is about to reach its zenith and ultimate purpose. He's saying, Jesus is coming back. He's referring to the return of Christ. Jesus is coming back, and when He does, He's going to fulfill everything that had been pointed to from eternity past. To quote Bill Gaither, the King is coming. Any time now, it's at hand. The story of history is going to come to its dramatic conclusion, God reigning and ruling on the earth with His people. And that, Peter says, is at hand. It's right here. It's imminently close, he said 2,000 years ago. And note that there are no qualifiers, no events that need to precede this coming. It's at hand. It's possible at any moment. And the urgency of these opening words here sets up the therefore and adding some oomph to the therefore, right? So the end of all things is at hand, therefore. And you're like, okay, therefore what? Because it's like you're leaning in, I want to know what's going on. Therefore, in light of the fact that Jesus is standing at the door, therefore. Therefore what? Well, that's what the rest of this passage is all about. We're going to see... What we are to do in order to show that we understand the urgency and the role that we have in our world in a world that doesn't have an awareness of the coming judgment and kingdom. And we're going to see four main, it's my favorite word in the whole message, foci. That's the plural of focus, by the way. It's not focuses, it's foci. So we'll see four main foci of this awareness and the things that we are, listen, to do as a result of our awareness that the end of all things is at hand. Jesus could come back any moment. So then how should we live? We're going to see four things. Alistair Begg called them vital signs 
of a healthy Christian and a healthy church. I like that. And there's going to be four things. If, uh, we're not going to look, follow this outline. We're just going to go by the passage, but it follows this outline. There's four things. Those four things are going to be prayer, love, showing hospitality, and using your gifts. Now, stop a second. The end of all things is at hand. Jesus could come back at any moment. So pray, love, show hospitality, and use your gifts. Hmm. Interesting. Our execution of these things show that we understand that Jesus is coming back at any time. And the fact that he's coming back, we want to be found doing the things that his followers should be doing as they wait and look for his return. And so this is a very doing-centered passage. And don't be afraid of that. We're not doing to earn our salvation, but we are doing as a result of having received the gift of salvation. We are doing in light of the king is coming and we want to please him when he comes. We want him to find faith on the earth, the faith that he gave us as a gift. We want to be doing what he's called us to do. Prayer, love, showing hospitality and using our gifts as we wait and look for his return. So the first verse gives our first imperative, our first sign. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now that's, that's really interesting. The first thing pointed out is Peter telling them to live and think a certain way, to be self-controlled and sober-minded... For what purpose? For the sake of your prayers. Does that sit odd with anybody? I mean, it just kind of feels odd. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your neighbor? For the sake of yourself? For the sake of your prayers? Hmm. So what's that mean? Well, let's address the two B's first. Be self-controlled and be sober-minded. And that's pretty clear able to control oneself, and being clear in judgment and in your thought patterns. I think the picture is of someone who's fully aware of what's going on around them and is able to do what they know they should do in the midst of what's going on around them. And Peter says, be these things, which means direct yourself, including your thoughts, in a way that makes you able to do and be what you need to do and be in response to the environment around you. I see what's going on around me. I can process it mentally and then I can choose to do what needs to be done in response. Listen, it's not reactivity or panic. And what is the purpose for this control and this thought pattern, this self-control and this sober-mindedness? For the sake of your prayers. Now when I first read that, I was kind of like, what? what? Not really seeing the connection, but it makes really good sense if we just slow down for a second and focus on it. Which really shouldn't surprise us when we know that the Holy Spirit has inspired it, right? It's going to make sense. Listen, when we know what's going on around us, and we know what we should do in response, our first response should be what? We should pray. Okay, I see this. This is what should be done. God, help me do this. Right? Because we don't do anything in our own strength. 
We don't do anything just because we think we should. We do it in the strength that God supplies, which we'll get to in a minute. So we see what's going on. Okay, so this whole spy balloon thing. What the heck? This feller went from like Alaska over Canada and Montana down into North Carolina on the coast. And after it did its spying, they shot it down. Now, I'm not trying to scare you, but does that scare you at all? We shot down a Chinese vessel over our airspace. That could be pretty scary. They're not happy about it, right? Neither would you be if you were China. You shot down our lovely weather balloon or whatever it is. But there are people who are panicking. Oh, no. This is the start of World War III. Oh, no. This, this is Gog and Magog. Oh, no. Biden's an idiot. He should have shot it down before now. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. And what this is telling me here, self-controlled, sober-minded, and pray. I'm not panicking. Who's sovereign over weather balloons? Who's sovereign over missiles? Who's sovereign over China and America? Listen to me. Please listen to me. Oh, golly. I believe that mostly we as Christians fall in the conservative ilk. Well, us as Providence Bible Church. Let me say it that way. That's probably a better way to say it. The talking heads of the conservative movement in America root and ground what they're saying, what they're proclaiming, so much in fear. Oh no, if we don't stop this, this is going to happen. Oh no, if we don't react to this. Oh no, if we don't. Oh no, if we don't. Oh no. Oh no, this is all coming true. We've said it's coming true for years. And look, it's right here. And everything's getting worse. And it's just going to get worse. And it's going to be terrible. You better like have a bunker and be able to retreat. And I'm not against a bunker. But, but you better just freak out. And if you're not freaking out, you're not paying attention. Because things are as bad as they could possibly be. That's not us, y'all. That's not who we are to be. We are to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. Not reactivity, not panic. Our first response as we see what's going on around us should be to pray in all things, right? And a clear-minded, self-controlled person is going to pray well, aren't they? They're not wringing their hands, hoping God will be as upset as they are, panicking in the face of adversity. Instead, they go to a sovereign God, knowing His power and control over all things, knowing that He is directing all of history to an ultimate end, and they ask Him to help them do what they need to do. It's not a chicken little, the sky's falling and things are going to fall apart because the world's gone crazy mentality. But it's a, God, you've put me here for such a time as this and I need by your grace and your spirit to do what you commanded me to do and be and who you've called me to be in the midst of all this. Help me to do what you've called me to in this time. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Quit praying panicked prayers.
self-controlled, sober-minded, praying, trusting in the sovereignty of God, the goodness of God, and the power of God to sustain you and carry you through all of this. It's not blowing apart. It's not coming apart at the seams. God is directing all of it. Live in order to pray better is what Peter's saying here. Now there's a novel thought, and I love it. And for sure, our life affects our prayers, and our prayers affect our lives, so there's kind of a circular effect here, and that's as it should be. Live to pray and pray to live. And in the midst of it all, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So that's the first thing Peter says we should do. Living in such a way that we're praying well. So prayer. Number two is in the next verse. Verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, Andrew mentioned it this morning in his reading from 1 Thessalonians. And we've seen this before too, back in 1 Peter 3.8. We saw this. Remember the chiasm thing? Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. The point of this verse in 3.8 was brotherly love, and everything else was serving to point to that, right? The corresponding points were having unity of mind and a humble mind, and then with sympathy and a tender heart, brotherly love. So we've already seen this before, but Peter's saying it again. And it turns out he wasn't playing when he said that before. Because here in 4.8, he says, above all. Now note that. You get the urgency of this passage? The end of all things is at hand. Above all. I mean, these are big statements. And above all shows the importance of this thing, the priority of this thing. Above all, more than anything else. As you see that the time is at hand, that Jesus is standing at the door, what should we do? Keep loving one another earnestly. This is a present active tense verb. Do it now, and it's always now, and you are the one to do it. It's not a call to be loved, but to love now. And now. And now. And it's always now, right? So you, if you're hearing my voice, you... Keep loving, keep agapeing one another. Every believer is called to keep on loving their Christian brothers all the time. I don't want to sleep, I just want to keep on loving you. Where's Will Smith when you need him, right? He's driving to Florida going, Amen. <laughs> That's Ario Speedwagon. If you keep on. Loving your Christian brothers all the time, earnestly. And that word earnestly means diligent, without ceasing, fervent, with purposeful intent. Above all, keep loving one another this way. It is of utmost importance that we as Christians love each other earnestly. And it shouldn't need to be said, but I'll say it anyway. This is not talking about how we feel in our heads and hearts about each other, but what we're doing with and for each other. Again, it's a doing kind of love. Baby, you and me got a doing kind of love. Phil Collins, sorry. I'll stop now. It's not an ooey-gooey feeling kind of love. It's a getting your hands dirty and doing things kind of love. Because the end is near, because Jesus could come at any time, above all, keep doing good to each other fervently and purposefully. And do so since... Peter says, since love covers a multitude of sins. 
Now, what's that mean? Maybe I, gotta, maybe I can kind of store up some capital in my spiritual life by loving other people. And that'll help take away some of my sins, right? Like I'll do six loving things and that'll cover six sins. I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek here, obviously. Hopefully you see that that's tongue-in-cheek. The overwhelming clarity of the New Testament shows us that nothing that we do atones for our sins. Only the blood of Jesus can take care of my sins, not my good deeds. So then what does this mean? So keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Thomas Schreiner gives some good words here. Quote, When believers lavish love on other believers, the sins and offenses of others are overlooked. The clear meaning is that love covers over the wrongs of others, while those who are full of hatred use the sins of others as a springboard to attack them. End of quote. All being said, it's really hard to hold the wrongs that others have done to you against them if you are actively, purposefully loving and serving them. Your love for them covers, hides, veils their sins against you. You're like, but wait a minute. If I'm loving people that are sinning against me, I'm enabling them and I'm telling them that they can keep on abusing me. They can keep on mistreating me. Well, that's not what Peter's saying here. Keep on loving one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. The the call to love each other is for the purpose of covering the sins of others. Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers the sins of others. And that's a little tough to take in our I-me-mine culture. I've been wronged. I have my rights. They shouldn't have done that to me. I deserve to have mine. Well, this is a, a 180 to purposefully seek to cover or overlook the sins of others that they have committed against you. And let me tell you what, that is counter to everything that is in your flesh. Because we want to point out the wrongs that they've done. We want to justify ourselves as to why we reacted or responded in a way that was not loving. Because they can't keep doing this to me. It's not what Peter says in the power of the Holy Spirit. Instead, as believers looking for the return of Jesus, we should be seeking the good of others instead of stockpiling ammunition to use against them in your confrontations with them. God's people are looking out for, serving, and blessing each other. And let me say this, if it doesn't start in your own home, it ain't going to go anywhere else. Love keeps no record of wrongs. All the more as we see the day drawing closer, as the writer of Hebrews would say. Okay, so prayer, loving, and now verse (laughs) 9. This comes out of nowhere, I think. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. (laughs) I find this to be really interesting. Prayer makes sense as an imperative, right? Loving others. Yeah, that checks out. And then the next you got four vital things that Peter's pointing out since Jesus is coming back soon. Four things that are of utmost importance. And this is show hospitality to one another without grumbling. 
I think if I was making a list of better make sure you're doing this when Jesus comes back, I'm not sure showing hospitality would make the cut for me. But I'm not God, so there's that. God says through the Holy Spirit, inspiring Peter here, that his people are to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Alrighty then. So then, what is showing hospitality? What do we think of immediately? Inviting somebody to our house and having a meal. Guess what? That's like a little teeny tiny part of it. The Greek word for show hospitality is philoxenos. And it means, now listen to this, disposed to treat guests and strangers with cordiality and generosity. Disposed to treat guests and strangers with cordiality and generosity. Again, inviting people over, cleaning the house, scrubbing the baseboards, because obviously they're going to look at your baseboards when they come in. Hosting them in our house, meals and entertainment, that's hospitality, we think. And it can look like that sometimes, but that's not all it is. Listen, to be hospitable is to be welcoming, loving, and kind to other people. It's a, listen, here's, here's the biggest picture, the biggest part of the picture. It's a willingness to share your life with other people. To welcome them into your world, into your life. And I'm afraid so many times we're working really hard to keep people out of our orbit. Don't come, hey, I love you. Stay right there. So we have to get out of an entertainment mindset. We're not looking to host parties or movie nights as our only means of being hospitable. That's, again, you can do that. That's part of it. Rosaria Butterfield says this, quote, Hospitality comes to us from the Greek word philoxenia, which I said, or love for the stranger. You ever heard of somebody being a xenophobe? It means they don't like outsiders. So this, this word has xena, xenia in it. Love for the stranger. She goes on to say, Christian hospitality aims to meet strangers and make them neighbors. And meet neighbors and by God's power, welcome them into the family of God through belief, repentance, conversion, and church membership. She finishes by saying, hospitality may include fellowship with believers, but neither hospitality nor fellowship is interchangeable with entertainment. End of quote. So I think we've missed this off the map for a long time. I'll say it this way. I've missed this off the map for a long time. I won't speak for you. We've reduced hospitality to having people in our homes pretty much period. And we've also said, well, I don't have that gift, so I'm not, I can't be very hospitable. Again, missing the whole point. There's a lot to take into account here. From what the verse is saying and from what Rosario Butterfield said there, it's a call for believers to share life with each other welcoming one another into each other's orbits on a consistent basis, and not just believers, but unbelievers as well. We need to share life with each other, and we need to be willing to share our life with those outside the faith. We need to be welcoming outsiders in, also in order to see them converted and become part of our lives 
even more importantly. And Peter says, we are to do all of this, (laughs) you ready? Without grumbling. Dun, dun, dun. That kind of ups the ante, doesn't it? I just got to share the Greek word for grumbling with you. You ready? Ganguzmas. Ganguzmas. Come on, everybody say, Ganguzmas. Ganguzmas. Thank you. That's fun to say, Ganguzmas. And it means just as it's translated, it means grumbling. The definition is murmur, murmuring, muttering. But it also means, listen, a secret displeasure not openly avowed. Yikes. It's some fussing down in a heart that never makes it out of the mouth. Muttering under your breath, thinking thoughts. Not giving voice to your secret complaint against this person you're supposed to be hospitable to. But instead of welcoming them into your life for their good and yours and the glory of God, you're showing pleasantries while you grumble inside. I'm going to have to do all these dishes when these people are gone. This person looks funny. This person smells funny. I'll be nice to them, but I don't like it. And Peter says, don't do that. Show hospitality to one another, which infers here, specifically among Christians, without grumbling. So it's not just do the outside stuff, check the box, make sure, Peter says, your inside stuff is right too. Listen, Christianity is very much a heart religion. Man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. Our outer works are supposed to show our inner state. Not interstate, inner state. Our outer hospitality is to show our inner love and concern for others. So without grumbling. It's not enough to just do the good deeds. It's not enough to just show the hospitality while you're rolling the eyes of your heart. Our hearts have to be as much in it as our hands and our pocketbooks and our time. Nobody knows how much this affects you except you. How much do you want to welcome people into your life and your home and your orbit down deep inside yourself? Well, I am an introvert. Fair. That's all right. Pray and ask God to help you have a loving heart that welcomes people into your life. That don't mean they've got to be in your face all the time. Even though some people will be in your face all the time. That happens. <coughs> but listen, oh, where do I go here? Yes. I don't care what personality test you've taken. I don't care what number... I hope you're not dealing with the Enneagram, but I don't care what number that that thing says you are. I don't care what you say, well, this is just who I am. I'm just not like that. That's not the answer to this problem. That's not the answer to your sin. You say, are you saying I'm sinning by not being hospitable? Yes. Yes. Because here, the point is, do this. And do it without grumbling. So what should you do? (gasps) Be sober-minded and self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. God, I don't want to welcome people into my life. Help me. And the Holy Spirit then does what you can't do in and of yourself. The Holy Spirit is not introverted at all, by the way. Always reaching out. Always reaching out. 
And I'm not saying that introversion is a sin. I'm not saying that. Some people are introverted. It's valid. It's real. It's a thing. But that can't be an excuse or a reason to not do this. So, I don't know how it affects you, but pray about it if you're going, nope, 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 nope. How much do you want to welcome people into your life, your home, and your orbit deep down inside yourself? Conversely, how much do you dread or fight against sharing life with others where no one else can see? Our hospitality toward one another is to be without grumbling. Of course, Paul would say, do all things without grumbling or disputing. But that's some good stuff right there. Okay, so Jesus is coming back. And as a result, we are to pray, love, show hospitality, and finally, what else? Verses 10 and 11 give us our last imperative in light of our shrinking window of history. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to him. Belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Okay. So this is the most expansive topic we'll have out of the four. And it centers on spiritual gifts. The word for gift here is charisma. And it translates literally as grace gift. And our verse here clearly shows that this grace gift, as if that definition itself wasn't clear enough, is something each has received. Now note that. Each, that means everyone, every member of the body of Christ, has a grace gift, which, as we'll see in a few, is to be employed in serving those in the body. Also, note that this gift has been received. Do you go out and buy your gifts that people give you? Do you go out and earn them? I hope not. Then they're not gifts. The fact that these gifts are received means that these people, us, also didn't work for it. They don't earn it. They don't deserve it. It was given to them and they received it. And that's important to note. Oh, I am disgusted at the church's teaching on spiritual gifts in our day and time. God gives these grace gifts to each member of the church. Let's start there. If you have been born again by the grace of God, you have a grace gift that God has given you. Now what's it for? Use it, this grace gift, Peter says, to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. That's loaded with implications, so let's break it down and unpack it some if we can. The grace gift that the believers have, that they've received, is for the purpose of believers serving one another. The word serve is the akaneo, you hear deacon in that, and it means to minister or to wait upon. Okay, so these grace gifts are for ministering, okay? We're doing some good here. And they're for us to serve and minister to each other. God has given us our gift, not for our personal use. My gift is this, check me out. The gifts are not for our own good, but for use in serving and ministering to others. Your gift has been given to you for everyone else. Not you. Get that straight. As each one has received a gift, use it to say, check out my gift, I'm really cool. As each one has received a gift, use it to build yourself up. 
No, as each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another. And remember, that's in light of Jesus' imminent return. Jesus is coming back, so pray, love, show hospitality, and use your grace gift to serve other members of the body of Christ. And Peter says to employ these gifts in service to one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. As good stewards of God's varied grace. It's worth looking into what a steward is. The definition is, quote, the manager of a household or of household affairs, whom the head of the house or proprietor has entrusted the management of his affairs, the care of receipts and expenditures, and the duty of dealing out the proper portion to every servant and even to the children not yet of age. End of quote. So these stewards, which Peter's calling on us to be, Stewards are managers who are responsible to care for the household that they were in, not their own household, somebody else's household, God's household in this case, ensuring that the people in the household and the accounts of the household are taken care of. Peter says that believers are to use these grace gifts that, have, that they have received to serve one another. Each is a good steward, a good manager of God's varied grace. Now note what these stewards are managing. They are stewarding God's varied grace. Now that's a big statement. God has entrusted to each believer through the charisma, the grace gift, the gift that they've been given, God has entrusted to each believer grace that the believer is to use to serve the other believers in their life, in their lives. They are literally stewarding the grace of God through these gifts by God's design. God wants to extend grace to His people. And He can sit on His throne and kind of ooze grace, but how's that going to affect us? So what He does is He bestows that grace on these individuals and tells them to distribute what He's given to them to all the others. So God literally shows His grace to us through us. And that's the purpose of the grace gifts. What he has given to each has to be used by each person specifically to reach and bless all those around them. They manage the grace that God has given them by giving it to serve others. Here's the grace that God gave me. I want to give it to you. As stewards of God's varied grace. And all the individual graces come together to form a whole that is so much greater than the parts that make it up. And each believer stewards their unique gift in order to make sure they're faithful with what God has given them. Peter then goes on to give some specific examples of what these gifts are and how to employ them. When he says, he gives two categories for these grace gifts. He says, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So from this verse, we see that there's gifts for speaking and there's gifts for serving. And in stewarding God's grace for our fellow believers, good, if our gift is a speaking gift, Peter says that we are to speak as one who speaks oracles of God. Now, wow, check that out. Now again, remember, we are stewarding God's grace. And if that means speaking, we are to speak as if we are speaking God's very words. 
Now, hopefully that's the goal and the point of what we do here every week from this pulpit. Hopefully we're speaking the oracles, the words of God. Whoever it may be that stands here and opens or proclaims the Bible is doing so as if they know and appreciate the fact that the Bible is literally God-breathed. It's literally God speaking His words. But listen, don't get stuck on just preaching or teaching. Those are speaking gifts. But speaking gifts come in more than one form. Words of encouragement, edification, correction, rebuke, instruction, and on and on and on. How many words do you think you speak a day? It's a lot. And if I'm stewarding God's grace well, when I'm speaking to people about God, about the things of God, about the call on their lives, on things they should do and shouldn't do, hopefully I am using those words, listen, as the very oracles of God Himself. If I'm to speak to other believers for their good, and sometimes that can be in correction, reproof, rebuke, exhortation. If I'm to speak to other believers for their good, may I speak the very words of God. Which makes the Bible awfully important, doesn't it? If I'm going to speak God's words, I need to know and master God's word. Not my opinions, not my preferences, not my personal interpretation or my personal revelation that I got last night. No, I'm supposed to speak as if I'm speaking the very oracles of God. Now, I'm not saying you're quoting book, chapter, and verse all the time. It's okay to do that. But sometimes I just need to encourage somebody. Sometimes the very words of God are, I love you. I'm sorry. I can tell you're upset. Now, I'm not saying God's saying those words, but it fits the principles of what God has said. And if I'm going to speak those words of encouragement, comfort, grief with other people, I want to speak as if I'm speaking the very words of God. So I know what the situation calls for. I am sober-minded, self-controlled, and have prayed about it so that I know what I should say. And sometimes that's just in the moment. You shoot up that quick air prayer, God help me to know what to say. And the Holy Spirit does things that we don't understand. If I'm going to speak God's words, I need to know and master God's word. Give me the book that I might give it to others. As if it were the very oracles of God Himself. Makes your words very important. Every word you speak, very important. Not to be taken lightly. And then Peter says that there are serving gifts. This is probably my favorite part of the message. He says, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Now get a hold of this. Serving is vital in the body of Christ. And it comes in so many different forms. From the classic setting up chairs, to cooking, to shoveling snow, to cleaning, to helping with tech. to And you get the picture. There's so many things that need done. There's so many ways that people need help. Ways that we can serve people. And it looks like meeting a need in a time of need. It looks like helping when someone needs help. And when one is serving in the body of Christ, now time out. When I say somebody is serving in the body of Christ, I'm afraid we have pigeonholed that into meeting on Sunday morning. So if I'm going to serve God, I've got to do it on Sunday morning when we meet together for church. Get that out of your head. Get that out of your heart. The hospitable Christian who, are, who is welcoming 
brothers and sisters into their lives, they're not pigeonholed into just serving on Sunday morning. They're serving as they live their lives and sharing that life with other believers. And so when one is serving in the body of Christ with chairs or tater tots or tools or whatever, whenever, wherever they are, how are they to do it? As one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Now that's a huge statement. Don't miss it. We are not to mindlessly do these deeds, these acts of service, just because we're available or just because we can. We are to approach these deeds of service, serving our brothers and sisters. We are to approach them petitioning God to help us do them in His strength. Yes, stacking chairs with the strength that God supplies. Getting things ready in the kitchen with the strength that God supplies. Playing music with the strength that God supplies. Opening the door with the strength that God supplies. Greeting people, loving people, speaking to people in the strength that God supplies. We are serving God's people. And we can only do that in God's strength. I can't preach unless God speaks His word. I can't effectively bless God's people through service unless God empowers me and does it through me. It's literally God serving His people through His people. Every act of service. In the strength that He supplies. That makes these acts of service, these things we do, not only important, it makes them holy. And that's God's design and intention. I'm not serving more than you're serving by standing up here and preaching. I'm serving in the way that God has given me to serve. I've got a speaking gift. God's given me a speaking gift. It's not mine. And so I use it to bless the people of God. You've got, a, you got a, a serving gift, use it in the same way that I'm using mine. Day in, day out, hopefully. And therefore these acts of service are Holy. And the fact that they are holy, and that's God's intention and design, is evidenced by Peter's last words in our text today. In order that, speak and serve in the strength that God supplies, in order that, in everything, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We speak as if we're speaking the very oracles of God and we serve in the strength that He supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. It's not about you or your gift or your act or your sermon or your church or your feelings or your preferences. It's all about the glory of God. It's all for the glory of God. Your speaking is for His glory. Your serving is for His glory. Your life and the grace given to you is for His glory. And all that we do is to be in order that in everything God may be glorified. And then he says that that glorification is not through you, but rather through Jesus Christ. We have been placed in Christ in union with Jesus so that all we do is a result of the gifts we are given in Him 
And so the glory God gets from our lives and work are literally through Jesus Christ. And Peter just can't contain himself and he erupts in praise, concluding his words today with, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Peter ascribes to God all the glory due his name. And he says that this glory and also the dominion belongs to God alone. Which kind of brings us full circle because dominion is power to direct or determine and govern. Peter is saying that all the power to direct and determine belongs to God alone. He's worshiping the sovereignty of God and delighting in God's choices and plans. And may we do the same. So we'll turn to application. That's the end of our passage, a magnificent passage. We'll be looking at application through four U's, not baby sheep, the letter U. Urgency, utility, us, and ultimate. Urgency, utility, us, and ultimate. First is urgency. We get this from the very beginning of the passage, the end of all things, is at hand. Let's live as urgent people. Let's not live as though we've got all the time in the world to figure out what we want, what we desire, what we can do, what leisure we can pursue. No, no, no. Let's be urgent. Emergency. Urgent. That's foreigner. I said I was getting off the 80s stuff. Urgency. I think, let me just ask you, how urgently do you live? I'm not saying panicked. Again, I said that earlier. I'm not talking about panicked. But with a sense of urgency. This is important. I need to do this for the glory of God. Which is our last point. But Live as though, Peter says in the passage, live as though you're expecting Jesus to return. Do you live that way? You can and you should. How would you live differently if you knew that Jesus was coming today? Maybe like, I don't know that I'd do much different. I'm still going to take a nap today. He'll have to wake me up when he blows the trumpet. But that's not wrong or bad. But I'm doing it with an awareness of, hey, Jesus, I'm waiting. I will wait for you with a sense of urgency. James 5.8 Echoes this, you also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. That's the brother of Jesus, echoing Peter's words, echoing the Holy Spirit's words. So then, what does that mean to live with urgency? So Jesus has come back, so what should we do? John MacArthur points this out, 1 John 3, 2-3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. Now watch this. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. If I am living in light of the hope that Jesus could come back today, John says, the Apostle John says, Therefore I should be purifying myself. I should be cleaning out the junk in my life. So that God will be happy when I come back? No, God's happy with us because of Jesus. Our salvation is based on the work of Christ. This is not purifying yourself, hoping that when Jesus comes back, He says, wow, you did really good. But it's like, I want to be so so pure. I want to be walking in holiness to the point that I'm, I'm pulling the weeds. I'm cutting the junk out. I'm cleaning the mud off. Of this world. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I just want to be clean and holy and pure so that I can be effective. 
Everyone who thus hopes in the coming of Christ, the imminent return of Christ, purifies himself as Jesus himself is pure. That's a sense of urgency. Peter says it this way, 2 Peter 3, age 12, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of leisure and fun? What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Oh, we've lost the concept of holiness in the modern church. We said it last week. I will because I can. And I'll explain to the world why I can do the same things they do. That's not holiness. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. A sense of urgency is seeking holiness and purity in the fear of God, in the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's urgency. Utility is the second point. Urgency, utility. We saw today four commands, four things. It's kind of like a Swiss Army knife type of mentality. These are, the, these are the tools that we have to use in order to live in light of the return of Christ, in order to live and love and serve people. Let me, let me define utility for you. I love this. The state or quality of being useful, having or made for a number of useful practical purposes rather than a single specialized one. Again, get rid of the mindset that I have a spiritual gift and this is what I'm supposed to do and nothing else. And that's what I've been taught so much of my Christian life. Find your gift. Operate in your gift. And what we saw today is we're supposed to pray, we're supposed to love, we're supposed to show hospitality, and we're supposed to use the gift that God's given us, whether it's a speaking or a serving gift. We're like utility knives. God can do a whole lot more through us than just one gifting. You are called to prayer. You are called to love. You are called to show hospitality without grumbling. And you are called to use the grace gift that God's given you to bless the other people around you. And so it's good to check under the hood every now and then and see how we're doing in these four main areas and tune up what needs work. Maybe you're like, man, I I feel pretty good about hospitality. I feel like I'm using my gift, but I just don't pray enough. Okay, God, help me to pray better. Help me to pray more. Help me to live sober-mindedly and in self-control for the sake of my prayers. There's no condemnation if you're not doing something well. There's grace, abundant grace, to not only help you know that you're forgiven, but in order to help you do the thing that God's called you to do. And I said it before, our gifts are far too often seen as only to be used in the church gathering. Our gifts are for all areas of our lives in serving the brothers. And they're not banners to be waved, look at my gift, but they're tools to be used, Alistair Beck says. How are you doing praying, loving, showing hospitality, and exercising your gifts? Ask God to help you do these things well, like the good Swiss Army knife that you are. I prefer a Leatherman myself, but... 
Urgency, utility. Oh, what? I didn't read my verses for utility. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. 2 Peter 1, 3-4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Given us all things, all things pertaining to life and godliness. Urgency, utility, us is the third point. Note the corporate nature of all of this. There is no such thing as a solitary, one man as an island Christian. There's no such thing. It's impossible. You're like, what if a guy gets shipwrecked and he is on an island and he's a Christian? Okay, I'll give you that one. But that's not you. In this passage alone, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, five verses, the phrase one another is used three times. And go through the New Testament and mark all the times it says one another. We are called to a corporate life. We are to shift away from individual happiness to corporate holiness. We're to shift from our individual preferences to God's very design. We're to move away from celebrity fanboying to serving one another. Us, it's about us. It's not just about me. It's not just about my family. It's not just about Providence Bible Church. It's about the people of God. The corporate nature of all this. 1 Corinthians 12, again. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Romans 12, another spiritual gifts passage. For by the grace God given... uh, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. I want us to live as us. I want my choices to be made on the basis of sharing life with other believers for the good of other people, not just my own good, not just my family's good, not just our church's good. That's what excites me about supporting these missionaries. Aside real quick, I know I'm almost done with time. If we do support the Dons, the D-A-Ns, Dons, who spoke here Wednesday night, Look at the footprint of Europe and the stronghold that God is giving us as believers to have an active hand all across Europe, in Lithuania, in Hungary, in Russia with Gabe and Becky. And the Napiers are just all over the place. That's good too. These young families who we literally can have a multi-generational effect on the Christians in Europe and Asia. Because we live like it's us and not just me. We live like it's all of us and not just our little us. 
urgency, utility, us, and finally ultimate. Listen, what it all boils down to, the reason for all of it, it is all to lead to the glory of God. Jesus didn't die for your plans or your preferences. Jesus died so that you would be saved and that God would get the glory for your salvation. I pray for the glory of God. I love for the glory of God. I show hospitality for the glory of God. I exercise my gift to the praise of His glory. Ephesians 1, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Last passage. Colossians 1, Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church, that's us. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be pre imminent it's all about his glory every thought every prayer every act every word it's all for his glory and may we live with a sense of urgency knowing that may we employ the utility of all the things that he's given us for that may we be us for that for the ultimate purpose of the praise of his glory and you're saying well I don't believe all that junk You can. By the grace of God today, you can put your faith in the finished work of Christ and know in your life that He can be preeminent in everything you do, in your thoughts, in your words, in your actions. And it is His will that sinners should repent, that sinners should see their need for forgiveness and look to Jesus who died a gruesome death on the cross to have His body broken and His blood poured out so that you can put your faith in His work of righteousness, taking your sins upon Himself so that He might forgive you, once His enemy, now seated at His table. And all you have to do is say, God, I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness. And I believe wholeheartedly that Jesus died to pay the penalty for my sins. And something miraculous happens at that point. Actually, it happened right before that point, but we won't go there today. It's available to you, for you, to the praise of His glorious grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have ordered all things according to the counsel of Your will. I do pray, God, that we would live with a sense of urgency, that we would employ all of the various gifts and callings and empowerments that you've given us individually to bless each other corporately. And God, that it would be ultimately to the praise of your glorious grace. Help us to live this way in the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said...
Amen. You're dismissed, but stay neat with us if you can.